Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's the big week leading on to the big day, the big moment that Dundee has been preparing for. It's Mike Press's podcast. Oh, I'm only joking. Um, obviously this week, um, assuming that you're listening to it, the day that it goes out, because who wouldn't do that? Um, yeah, it's the opening of the V&A. Um, yeah, we've, just sort of, we've all been building to this point. Um, and I think I saw a tweet this week. I think I should have really checked, but I think it was from Gillian Eason of Creative Dundee. And she said she was looking forward to us all getting to our new normal um, with the museum being open, with us all being able to go down and sort of enjoy that space, uh, enjoy the building and just have have it open. I hope it was Gillian. I hope I've not just attributed that to someone else. But yeah, I think it's lovely and I, I think I can't wait to, to sort of have that openness again down in the waterfront to, so that all the, the barriers are gone and we can just sort of get there and just enjoy that um, enjoy that area and enjoy the, the building that we've sort of feels like we've waited so long for. Um, so yeah, I'm excited and I hope you all enjoy um, Friday night and the Saturday um, yeah, and get inside and get to see the building. And if you listen to it afterwards, well, I hope it was good. <laughs> anyway, Mike Press. So, I mean, a big personality. Um, I'm sure uh, quite a few people will know Mike uh, probably quite well. And, I mean, there is so many things in this episode. Um, there's so many facets to his career. Um, I probably didn't even have to ask any questions. I could have just let him talk for probably two, three hours and he would have been... Yeah, I mean, he's, he's just a, a fantastic so storyteller. Um, so sort of charismatic. We sort of get on to this, this, this concept because I asked him about um, if he feels he has a persona when he is um, facilitating workshops, when he's speaking publicly. He has a very specific sort of candour and um, approach to the way that he speaks and the way that he presents. Um, and I asked him how, where this sort of came from, how it came about. Um, and he, he talks uh, about how we all have this protective um, persona that distance, distance yourself from your real self when you are presenting or doing any sort of public work. And it's a sort of protection mechanism where um, if something does go wrong, then it's okay, that wasn't you, that was the person who was presenting, a part of you. Um, which is a really sort of interesting take on that. I think there's a sort of fascinating um, perspective on it and something I'd never really thought about before. Um, and I mean that's one of many little snippets that that really are, are genuinely fascinating about this episode. Um, yeah, I, mean, I could I could go on, but I probably should just stop rambling. Um, yeah, so let's just get into the episode. This is number seventy, and this is with Mike Press. The, well, the journey is, um, I suppose, it's quite boring, really. I mean, it, it's um, I was brought up in the home counties, just north of London. And um, was uh, dramatically unsuccessful at school. I mean, I was just, I was hopeless, really, at school. And um, I failed most of my, my O-levels. Um, I got a job as an insurance clerk. And um, I suppose the most notable thing in that job, I, I was responsible for um, motor insurance claims. 
So um, I was only about a few weeks into the job, and I got my first famous person. This was George Harrison. He'd wrapped his Mercedes around a roundabout just outside uh, Henley-on-Thames. So I had to sort all that out. And actually, out of the year that I spent doing that job, that was the most interesting week. In fact, it was the only interesting week. So I realized that um, I was being faced with a career as an insurance clerk, which wasn't particularly gratifying or um, a stimulating idea or to try and get into college and do something. And back in those days, we had something, I don't think you had them in Scotland, but in England, we had polytechnics. They gave people a second chance, but also they attracted people with lots of diverse backgrounds. So I retook an A-level and I got, um, I got accepted to Middlesex Poly to do a degree, um, quite a radical degree. It's quite an experimental degree. It was a four-year degree course, which in England was unusual. Um, called it was a BSc in Society and Technology, and it had been set up by a guy who'd been an advisor to Tony Benn, who at the time was a kind of you know, a leading left winger in the Labour Party. And I suppose it was trying to answer the problem of we have so many politicians, we have so many decision makers that are making decisions about science and technology, but know absolutely nothing about it. So how can you create a course that is cross-disciplinary, or rather, as it termed itself, multidisciplinary? So we were doing everything from philosophy to physics, um, from technology to ecology, etc., there's only about 20 of us on our year and so I did that course and we all went off and did some remarkably different things you know my mate Dan uh, he ended up as a water engineer and in fact he was the first person or one of the first people into Phnom Penh after the Khmer Rouge had been thrown out of power he had to plumb the city back into a water supply again. Bill set up a industrial design company in San Francisco. Dave went off to be an art director in the movies. And I ended up being a computer programmer. Because at the end of the 70s, I don't know, I kind of thought, yeah, computers, they're going to be possibly quite important. So I better learn how they work. So I got a job with the NHS as a computer programmer. So that was, um, yeah, an interesting, an interesting period where I was, I guess I was trying to find myself. I was trying to get a sense of direction. And I thought I'd got a sense of direction with computer programming. Was that as an obvious path as we would see it now? Or was it just a bit of a punt and a bit of a gamble? I think a bit of both. I mean, I, I I think you know we were we were at the stage. This was before computers entered most offices. You know, like big, you know, the big military industrial corporations. They would have they would have computer systems. But um, I I work for the NHS, right? And and I was uh, in an office of about I don't know twelve fifteen people, and we served all the IT needs for the northwest of London, right? So every single hospital. One of my jobs there was um, designing and implementing a computer system for the warehouse. And this is the warehouse that everything for the, all of those hospitals in North West London would go through this one warehouse. And that I found interesting because I was sitting down mainly with the women who, who worked there and figuring out, well, so what do you do? What's your job? What do you, what are these forms? How do these forms work? What, how, talk me through the process that you you know, a whole uh, box load of, um, I don't know, um, 
wipes come in and how do you order them? How do you store them? How do you um, requisition them, etc.? So I had to understand that process and then turn it into a computer system. So that was my job for two years. And so at, at that point, were I mean, you were going through a design process. Yeah. But were you consciously doing that as a structured thing and calling it a design process or were you just no, going I mean, the job? No, I mean, I'd never... Th- thought of it at the time as a design process when when i had been at school the only the only the only two things i was any good at at school was music and um uh, and art and i kind of wanted to be a designer well, actually i wanted to i wanted to design record covers that was my passion you know and um uh, i went to a school that uh, had no idea about art schools at all so it was you know i want to i want to do art i didn't even know design was a thing i didn't know graphic design was a thing so Oh, right, okay, press. Well, I think you should... Uh, you'd probably be good at designing window displays. We could probably get you a job doing that. And I'm thinking, actually, no, that's not what I want to do at all, which is why I kind of went down this other route, which was about social science and technology and stuff. But effectively, what I found myself doing was being was being a designer. Not that I... As I say, I did not that I turned myself that at all. Um... But yes, going through a design process. But but the thing I found most interesting, the thing that I became most passionate about as this job went on for two years was the people that I worked with. And you were realizing that actually, well, I was realizing what I was doing was designing their future job. You know, these women at the warehouse, I was designing what their job was going to be. And so I would ask them questions about, well, you know, kind of what, what, what do you like about your job? What don't you like about your job? Because can, can we kind of automate that out of it and stuff? And for those reasons and for other reasons, I, I ended up being quite active in the trade union. If I ended up as the shop steward for this uh, computer center. And I can very proudly say that I led the first strike of computer workers in the NHS in the UK uh, back, in, back in 1980, 81. So that was the thing that most that most interested me. And in fact, the computer programming side of it, there were elements, there was the human side that I really was fascinated by. But the actually sitting down and coding, because you, you had to write everything longhand. So when you're writing a program for a warehouse uh, system or, say, a payroll system, you literally wrote it out on sheets of paper because we didn't have terminals you know, terminals weren't a thing. You would uh, write out on these sheets of paper, they would go downstairs, they'd be put onto punch cards, and then you'd get a whole stack of printouts coming back along with your punch cards after they'd run the program through. Sounds really boring, and it was. And um, so you had no real-time interaction with the computer. And I remember the first time a terminal was put in our office, in in the programmer's office, and it was like someone had invented fire. Ooh. You know, you can actually interact with a computer in real time. This was this was unheard of. But that side of it didn't really interest me. So the, it was the trade union side that did. So I went off to Warwick to do an MA in industrial relations because I thought, actually, I wanted to get a job in a trade union. I was interested in technology. I was interested in how technology and work interacted. I was interested in the potential of people to design their own jobs and looking at technology as something that was 
potentially democratic, but often wasn't. So it was that whole social political side of technology and also that that design side as well. So I go off to Warwick, which was a bit, it was a bit of an eye opener for me, really, or or in a sense, because I'd been a student in London in the seventies, mid to late seventies, and um, you know I was involved in the squatting movement. Um, I was there in North London when punk was invented, you know. So uh, you know I had a red Mohican. No, really, I did, and uh, difficult to imagine now. But there you go, and so. Um, you kind of had gone through all that, and then suddenly there was a campus university, and I found that a bit, bit weird. So that was for a year, and then at the end of that year, I got a scholarship to study, to postgraduate study in the University of Amsterdam. So off I went to Amsterdam, but I kind of dropped out quite early on because I got a much more interesting job in Amsterdam, working for the Transnational Institute, which was a, um, a European-American uh, policy institute, and basically my job there was to organize events and conferences for trade unionists from across the world who works in the same sector or in the same company. So we would bring together people who worked at Ford in Belgium, Germany, Brazil, uh, United States, Britain, etc. Um, one of my sectors was telecommunications. So I was kind of really interested in how you could bring together people who made telecom equipment, people who were involved in the service side of that. And again, we're looking here at the early 80s, right on the cusp of this revolution in telecommunications. You know, everything was still analog. Um, the internet wasn't really a thing. I mean, it was a it was a thing for academics, mainly in the United States, but it hadn't kind of hit the mainstream at all. So that was that was uh, that was fascinating, and that was kind of the direction my career went for a time. Um, I can tell you actually the f the first time that I came across the internet. Um, so one one of the difficulties of organising these events for for workers across the world. And, and we were doing that because of the power of transnational corporations. So transnational corporations have this power. Workers within them don't have that power because it, it particularly in the 80s, it was incredibly expensive to go from one country to another. It's very expensive to pick up the phone. You know, we didn't have Skype then. So to actually call someone between, even from Britain to Belgium was expensive. I would fly to Belgium or Amsterdam and I, I would be the only non-business person and back then businessman, you know, on the flight because it costs hundreds to fly from the UK to another European country. So it was all very exclusive. But what we were trying to do was to break down these barriers and think of innovative and creative ways of people at least having some sense of solidarity and communication with each other. So... Um, so I went along to, I remember this vividly, going along to a, um, uh, a demonstration in, in Amsterdam. And um, there were two parts of this demonstration. First of all, these two guys from Manchester got up and explained in theory how the internet worked, right? Uh, basically, they're sitting there saying, right, okay, so we've got, do you want to know what packet switching is? No. So they explained what pa packet switching was, which... For those of your listeners who don't understand it, so when you send data down a telephone line using the internet from your computer to another computer, your computer then splits it up into lots and lots of packets of information that shoot out 
all across the globe and try and find the fastest way to get to their destination, then the computer at the other end puts them all together in the right order, right? So that means that it makes most efficient use of a globally distributed communication system. So for packet switching to work, you've got to have cables, you've got to have satellites in space, right? They say we're beaming messages across satellites and all kinds of stuff. So they'd explain to us the theory. <laughs> Me and my mate Paul, we went outside to have a fag. I don't know why, because you could have smoked indoors then. Go outside to have a fag. I remember him saying, I've never heard so much Star Wars rubbish in all my life. This is absolute meaningless dribble. And I kind of was kind of going along with him because I was thinking, oh, come on, satellites in space. Yeah, we were assuming that we had to launch them. You know, it wasn't kind of the theory wasn't particularly well explained. Then our friend Martha did a demonstration. Well, if they'd done the demonstration first, we would have been well over far more quickly. She had this this little uh, TRS-80. It was it was a computer, like a, like a little laptop made by um, Tandy, or Radio Shack, as it was in the States. And it was uh, about the size, about the size of a laptop, about an inch thick. And its display screen was about six lines of text just above the keyboard and he had a memory of 32k i got to know that memory very well because you would always would, would be pushing it to the limits that gave you about five a4 pages typed up right but the great thing about the trs80 is it had a built-in modem right so you could work remotely and as long as you had some use of the internet then you could start sending messages and sending documents and so forth so she started demonstrating how she was sharing a document with someone in San Francisco. The other thing about the TRS-80, it was, it was the last computer ever to be, had, had the operating system written by Bill Gates. You know, not a member of his staff, but actually good old Bill, right? So it's quite a historic uh, device. So it, I watched this presentation. I thought, well, this is it, you know. This is this make will make the big difference. This is how you can actually bring people across the world together by using this technology that is actually quite accessible. It doesn't take too long to learn how to use this computer. So that's what, uh, yeah, I started using that quite a bit in my work. Um, and I was working for um, an organization in Coventry that was connected with this project. And so we were... Uh, working with trade unions and politicians and local government, um, looking at yeah how you how you um, bring people together internationally, and I ended up writing I think one of the first or, or co-writing co rather one of the first accessible books on how to use the internet and use email. Um, a friend of mine, Don Thompson. Uh, they sadly died in the in the in the nineteen eighties, and he was he'd written this really great book about um, international solidarity that I found personally very inspiring. And he was in the middle of writing a second one when he sadly and tragically died. And so his widow asked me and another guy called Peter Tate to try and salvage what we could of the book. And in fact, when we looked at it, Don, Don had had drafted a lot but it was all in longhand and it was actually quite difficult to interpret it so we kind of had to write half the book ourselves now peter was an interesting fellow because peter he'd been a miner he'd been a kent mine worker and he ended up as the general secretary of the international mine workers federation so this is like the international trade union for miners 
And he'd been really involved in the in the miners' strike in the early 1980s. And about, you know, how you build solidarity, get miners in Germany and France and elsewhere supporting the UK miners. So uh, we worked on this and we wrote part of the book was about, and he was absolutely, I mean, I guess he was thinking, I used to think of, of Peter back in the 80s as, as quite an old guy. He's probably a couple of years older than I am now, but... Um, and I understand he's no longer with us, but he was great, and he had a very future-oriented view. He absolutely embraced new technology. So we wrote this this part of the book together about how you can use the internet and how you can use email and send messages and all that kind of stuff. So that was, um, yeah, that was a fascinating period. And again, it was about trying to figure out how do you use this technology in a positive way to bring people together, to make change happen, and to get people to communicate in a different way. Um, but in terms of change, it was time for me to change because a lot of the funding back in the 80s for the projects that I was working on were was being closed down basically by the British government, by the Thatcher government. So I thought... Okay, maybe get a regular job. And a job came along in a design school in Stoke, where I happened to live at the time. Um, and at the time, in, in design schools, they were just thinking about research. You know, research, we, we don't do research in art and design. We should be doing research. And by this stage, I was running a research consultancy. So I applied for this. Initially, it was a part-time job. And I got it. And which surprised me um, as much as many other people, quite honestly. So I thought, okay, I'm going to work in design education for two or three years and then I'll go back. And I actually ended up in it for 25. So why do you think that you, they took you on in that first position? Um, because, because I... Um, um, because I was, I, I could do research basically, and I understood, I understood what you know, lots of different methods of doing research. Um, you know, I was doing the uh, doing the stuff with uh, the internet, etc. But actually, most of my job was about doing uh, fairly regular research projects for local authorities, for local government. Um, so I knew how to plan it. I knew how to undertake it. And uh, because of my background in both technology and social science and the humanities, then I knew different research methods. And I think they were the, the interesting thing about design education was I went into it and they kind of thought that in design, I think it was a collective confidence thing. They thought that they were um, just not very articulate. They thought that almost that they were a bit on the thick side. Right. And they need some intellectual, not that I would ever term myself as an intellectual, coming in to show them how to do it. And actually, very, very quickly, I realized that what I was witnessing in art and design was an approach to developing knowledge um, and doing research that was completely different from anything else that I come across. And it didn't make any sense for me to try and transplant social science or economic research methods into a design environment. It made no sense at all. But there was a bridging that was needed. I mean, there was there were certain methods. Um, you know, there's a lot of methods in, in user research, in design ethnography that come out of the social sciences. But it's it's a two-way street. You know, there's, a, there's now, I think, over the last two, three decades, that confidence and certainly that expertise has, has built up. Um, so they aren't just 
you know, parachuting in, in people from other disciplines and trying to build up their research that way. So that was my job. But, but the job then kind of expanded quite quickly. So it, it became a full-time job. And then I started teaching. And um, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> when you first started the, the teaching aspect of it, what, what were you teaching? I was teaching costing formulas to potters, right? So it was like, it was like business studies for ceramic students, which I, I quite enjoyed. It was quite interesting. And, I mean, so one of the things that has been a... Um, was a particular frustration at the time, and it's changed a great deal, as you know, is that um, design education isn't particularly good at the enterprise side of things or the business or the organisational context, right? And And quite often, in some places, not in all places by any means... But it it puts design in a bit of a vacuum, in a bit of a bubble, right? And it's we're just focusing upon the creative skills rather than understanding the organizational context or the business context. So I had to try and find different ways of getting students to understand initially how that kind of business side of things work. But whilst I was teaching that, I was also interested in this is the age of you know postmodernity and other you know, cultural discourses around design. I found all that fascinating and and how the stuff that I'd done over the years before also helped understand, um, yeah, I was interested in the culturing of the economy, you know, how cultural production was much more important in economic terms and actually how designers were at the forefront of this, but they didn't realise they were at the forefront of this. You know, this whole massive revolution that was taking place in terms of advertising, in terms of retail, um, you know, and we're talking about the, uh, you know, the Conran revolution of the 80s and the 90s, which was about completely new approaches to retailing. And again, the internet hadn't hit us at that point. We're talking about the early 90s. Um, so that, um, yeah, I had to f- try and figure out different ways of getting my design students to think about society, to think about technology, to think about culture, and to think about economics and business as well. So at this point, you were in, still in Stoke? Yeah. And how long did... Did you remain there? I was there. I was there for f- my first job was five years in Stoke, and I, as I said, I, I wasn't a particularly great teacher because then, and again, this change in higher education. But you got a job as a lecturer, and that basically, okay, so uh, between ten and twelve on a Monday, you're teaching that year, and then you're doing this, that, and the other, and best of luck, get on with it. No training absolutely no training at all right so i i was i was good as a researcher i had confidence at that and i was good at i think dealing with people generally but i didn't know any technique in terms of teaching now fortunately uh my mum was a teacher so i'd go back home mum um what do you do in this kind of situation well what i suggest you do is that i mean she used she taught in, in secondary education, taught geography. I was a, a brilliant teacher, still is. Um, but so that was actually the only tuition I had was from my mum, <laughs> really. And the only advice, she, she gave me some great advice, has to be said. Um, but I had nothing, and I would, I would, you know, read books on teaching technique and I'd ask other people and so forth, but I wasn't very good. Well, what do you think differentiates the good teachers from the great teachers? Oh, oh, that's a question. I I think there's a lot of 
factors that differentiate it it's partly it's about confidence and initially it's being able to wing it and then figure out actually okay i do need more technique and i'm going to build on that and become more confident at it um it's about being able to explain things clearly to people and it's about having some kind of connection so that you can inspire the people that you're working with and and i think most importantly it's about being yourself and a lot of those things come with other life experience so having done you know from the early 70s through to the early 90s and a lot of different things and been in different situations so you can you can bring that experience in okay so i was at staffordshire it was a university by this point. I'd started off there. It was it was North Staffs Polytechnic. And within two years, we were a university. We were, but of course, we were still a polytechnic, basically. And and it was a great, and it still is, you know, it's a great university. It had two sites, one in Stoke and one in Stafford, about 15 miles apart. And the university decided, decided that they were going to move the business studies course from Stafford to Stoke. And uh, I, I can't remember why. There must have been a reason for it. Although, knowing how university managements work, possibly not. there wasn't a reason for it. What that left at Stafford was engineering and computer science. And it was April that it was the student union, actually, who figured, hang on a minute, you've just turned us into a male campus. Mm. And the students went ballistic, right? The, the engineering and computer science students. So the call went out. Right, we've got, we've, got to, we've got to invent, because by this time, they'd actually started moving students, staff, etc., building new lecture theatres in Stoke. We've got to build a new course that will attract women, right? This is April, right? May, we started work on it. We had to recruit in clearing, which gave us two months to design a course, to validate a course, to start recruiting it, and then a few weeks afterwards to start delivering it. Universities can work very, very fast when they have to. But so we invented this course on called Enterprise Innovation and Communication. I think it was marketing. We said, you put these three words together, right? That will, that will recruit really well uh, on clearing. I was innovation, right? <laughs> so I was parachuted in from the design school, right? You've got to teach them design. Okay, fine, I can teach them design. How many students are we talking about? 200. Okay, right, 200 students, yeah. Have I got any other staff? Yeah, you've got one half-timer that you've got for one and a half days a week. 200 students, yeah, okay, good. And when do I have these 200 students? You have them on a Monday morning from, I think it was 10, it was half past nine, half past nine till half past 12, I think, three hours, in a lecture theatre to teach design, Right? That was my job. So I went in, and the first week was, uh, yeah, we recruited 200 students. I I, I still wasn't very confident as a teacher at this point, right? And I still wasn't, I I was fine with students who wanted to learn, people who wanted, particularly they wanted to learn design, and that was fine. So there I was, right? First week was kind of, uh, was saying what was going to happen over the next, you know, two semesters. So that was kind of okay, and, and it was all new. They were new, I was new to them, etc. It was the second Monday, right, where things started going dramatically pear-shaped. And I can remember it now. I'm standing there, right? I've got this full lecture theatre. There's 200 people. And it's a bit like a forest fire. If on the back row... 
people start chattering, right? It spreads. And actually, if it spreads more than about three or four rows, like a forest fire, you can't actually stop it, right? And you pull every stunt to try and, and regain control. But I had realized that I lost it. I realized that I'd lost it. And I was trying, I don't know what I was doing. I was trying to be what I thought, I don't know, a lecturer should be. And I was quite, I suppose I was quite boring and I wasn't engaging with them. And I, had, I hadn't taken into account that these student, the students were there from clearing. They, they probably weren't, well, most of them weren't interested in design at all, right? And I wasn't really doing anything to make it particularly more interesting. God, that was despair. Irriting. I remember driving away from there thinking, I can't do this. I really can't do it. What am I, what, am I going to do next week? And um, I worried about that all week. And I worried about it all weekend, right? I got this Monday morning gig uh, staring me in the face. Sunday night, it was a Sunday night, and I was about to go to bed. And I looked on TV. They were about to show Good Morning Vietnam, the Robin Williams movie i thought God, it's 10 o'clock you know I, I gotta get up i've got these 200 students tomorrow i just I'll, I'll see quarter of an hour of it then i'll go to bed i watched the whole thing i found it incredibly inspiring don't get me wrong right i'm not robin williams anywhere close but what watching that movie did was it made me realize actually all you can do all you can ever do in whatever job you do particularly if you're trying to engage with other people is be yourself, right? And don't let anything divert from that. And don't try and pretend to be what you're not. And I, that was what I was doing. I was trying to pretend to be some, I don't know, what I was trying to pretend to be. So I drove down the next morning and I tried to be myself. And it worked. And we had a great morning. And uh, I remember going out for a break because I, I was a smoker in those days. I went out for a fag break. And um, I overheard, I wasn't quite ear-rolling people, but I kind of casually overheard people. God, he was dreadful last week, but this morning he's great, isn't he? And I thought, right, okay, so I'm, I'm kind of heading in the right direction. So that's all I've ever tried to do as, as a teacher, and I think that's all great teachers do. And I've, again, I've seen my mother do this, you know, in, in a class of of kids uh, just being yourself and trying to share that passion. Um, I, I think there's only two things that you can teach, actually, and that's all that I've ever tried to teach. And the two things are passion and self-confidence, right? You have to demonstrate that you're passionate about something. And if you can demonstrate that, then they'll go with that. They'll react to it in some kind of way. They will at least be interested in it, if not passionate. And you've got to believe in the people that you're teaching and, and that will give them their self-confidence. All the rest of it, the skill, the technique, the knowledge, oh, they'll learn that themselves. Yeah, that's what design, most of what you learned in design education, you learned yourself by going through a craft learning process. Okay, people would demonstrate stuff and people would inspire you with things, right? But you did all the heavy lifting when it came to the, the learning. And it was people who, who were saying, Ryan, you can do this. You're great at this. You're f that's the thing that makes a difference. That's the thing that always makes a difference in teaching. It's someone who is validating who you are and what you're doing. Passion and self-confidence are the key things that we need to teach. And we need to pass on from generation to generation. So 
I mean, we've, we've gone over half an hour and we've still not even mentioned Dundee yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. So, yeah, so I end up, I end up, uh, go from Stoke, go, go, I have to speed this up a bit, uh, to Sheffield and my first professorship at, uh, at Sheffield. And that was where I met Hazel, my uh, collaborator, partner, wife, eventually. And, uh, yeah, that was great. And, um, yeah, that was, uh, again, that enabled me to focus on the teaching that I was really interested in and the um, writing books and uh, and also doing research. And, th- and that got me into doing work around design and crime and latterly design and counterterrorism and stuff. Yeah, I get the, so just talking a bit about the professorship. So the professorship... Um, I, I got a professorship because I had three really important qualities. I was a man, I was white, and I got a BBC accent. That's why I got my professorship before other people who were actually much more deserving than me, who'd achieved a lot more uh, than me. And uh, I'll not name them, but it... it that was the thing that I guess made me realize that the higher education, along with many, many other uh, domains, um, is biased, is it at the time was actually quite misogynist, uh, was a sexist environment, had problems in terms of diversity. Now, it is changing. It has changed. It's changed in some institutions a lot faster than, than other places. But I was always aware that I my career had progressed because I had those advantages. Um, and that's why I have tried my best to give advantage, not unfair advantage, but to try and encourage uh, particularly women to do things like, you know, apply for PhDs and so forth, because that is the only way that eventually you're going to you're going to make those changes, uh, make those changes happen absolutely nothing to do with me but i was delighted today to learn that one former student has now got her professorship and i I didn't teach her uh directly but um i'm so thrilled about that and that is changing in higher education today um we've still got a long way to go so i was in sheffield for six seven years and um I then applied for a job as head of Gray School of Art and um, up in Aberdeen. I applied for that because I was so frustrated uh, at working for people who I didn't think were particularly good. <laughs> I thought, well, I don't know. I think I can do that job better than you can, mate. And this job, I saw this job out of it actually um, while we were on holiday in the far north of Scotland up in Caith Ness. And I saw this in the back of The Guardian. And uh, I thought I've got to go for this. I've got to see if if I'm capable of of you know am I am I good at this? Potentially good at that or not? You know. And it was one of those things you, you know, uh, I kind of have to prove to myself one way or the other. And um, so I applied for the job and um, was very fortunate to get it. And I lasted there about two years. And um, I found that I could do it, and actually there were many aspects about the job that I didn't, I did enjoy a huge amount. And Gray's is a lovely art design school; it's fantastic. It's intimate, it's lovely. The students were fantastic, the colleagues were great, um, and 
one of the things that was the difficulty there is that Hazel was working down here in Dundee. I was up there. Our son was three at the time, and it it was it was really really difficult to you know I drop him off at eight o'clock in the morning. I'd try and pick him up as late as I could, um, you know, from childminders. Hazel would get in off a train from Dundee at, at seven in the evening. You know, he'd be seeing Hazel for at best you know kind of half an hour, and it was just a busy busy and and not particularly. A uh, great uh, family situation, you know. So we were kind of thinking, well, how can we, how can we resolve this? Um, when, when an opportunity in Dundee came up for me, but I think the other one of the factors that that swung it was that I found myself at one point because this is what people who are managers end up doing. I found myself outside Grays in the rain in the car park, counting parking bays, and I'm thinking to myself, why? god's name are you doing what are you doing you know <laughs> you know and that's that's kind of what managers end up doing some it's really really trivial things that really they shouldn't be doing so then we came to we came to dundee and uh yeah we've really enjoyed dundee dundee's been great it's uh where callum has spent most of his growing up and most of his well nearly all of his schooling and um yeah duncan and jordanston was a great place to work um yeah, really proud of what we did there and uh, people that we worked with. Um, and I suppose that's one of the other themes, really. Um, I mean, I'm conscious I've been talking about myself and I find actually what I do is quite boring, really. But I, I suppose one of the lessons that I've learned all, all the way through what I've done is it's about collaboration and it's about finding people to work with. So these people uh, that I end up doing my degree with, we were very collaborative. Um, and we ended up, you know, our final assessment on our degree course were collaborative projects. You know, and actually we insisted that. We, we argued that with the, with, the, um, with the tutors and they were fine about that and so forth. Everything that I did around uh, computing and so forth, and particularly all the stuff that I did in uh, Amsterdam and in Coventry, that was all about collaboration. And it was finding finding people to work with and, and also finding your role. And I think that's a really important thing. And I think that's one thing in higher education that we don't do enough of is explaining to people how do you find your role and how do you collaborate. When you were at DJ CAD, um you i mean you were one of the people who had a very strong connection with the creative community in dundee so why did you feel it was important to create that link between the university and the the creative community and how did you build that over time so we're going back now about a decade or so and and dundee was still trying to find its direction and find its way and uh, find a future for itself and the idea of V&A Dundee had just been broached um, and I was lucky enough to be involved in the very first part of that I mean literally four of us went down to London we stayed in the hotel opposite the V&A uh, in London for a week and every day we go in and have different meetings with people about this is what Dundee's like this is why you should do something in Dundee this is how it would work blah 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 and so, but it was actually, you know, we still weren't clear that or, or convinced that V&A would go with it. Why, you know, why do this in Dundee? So 
you had to have lots of other irons in the fire. And it's always collaboration that makes things happen. It's always collaboration that makes change happen. I'd seen that in Sheffield. I'd been less involved in it in Sheffield. But I'd seen how Sheffield had gone from a, a, the city uh, that had been well nailed, actually, by the movie The Full Monty, right? That was, it had the economic and cultural guts kicked out of it, right? Its entire self-confidence, its entire self-worth had gone. Within a decade, less than a decade, it went from that to being a city that was proud of itself again, that still had problems, as Dundee has problems and challenges, but has a sense of where it wants to be and has a sense of ambition and also growing sense of achievement in what it's doing. And it was clear that what was happening in Dundee um, was important. And I suppose one of the one of the triggers here has to be Creative Dundee because um what Gillian and Lyle have done um and you could see that happening right at the start when it was first a website and then I guess the Pecha Kucha night I remember the first Pecha Kucha night I turned up to and you're in this room and you think whoa right there's all these people here right who kind of it's very diverse very di different people but wow, there's, there's, there's a great potential here for people to collaborate and do things differently and for all this creativity to be focused on the city, but also for that creativity to break out of the bubble, right? Just keeping it in a Pecha Kucha night isn't enough. It has to infuse the city. It has to work with other communities. It has to inspire the city as a whole. It has to build things that we can't imagine yet, but things that are going to make a positive difference um, to the the people who live here, right? And it can solve the problems of homelessness and substance abuse and, and uh, unemployment and the other issues that the, the, the city uh, faces. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of progress has been made in that and will continue to be made. But yes, I felt with a passion that that's, that, was, uh, that was important for that creative community to come together and for me to play whatever little role I could in trying to bridge uh, Duncan and Jordanston with that community. So I, I started developing these modules where students actually had to turn up to Peshakucha nights and had to turn up to make share evenings because they were going to get assessed on what they were going to write reflexively about that experience. And so I, you know, I, but I thought, you know, if you're a student here, whether, whether you're from Dundee or from anywhere else, right, just connect, connect with the city, get involved with other people, break out of the student bubble and, and connect. So, uh, and it's been exciting. It's been absolutely exciting. And seeing now how this has come to a culmination this year of the opening of uh, V&A Dundee, and I suppose a sense of aspiration and achievement for the city is very gratifying. Yeah, definitely. And I think, as you say, I think I got contacted by many of your, your students because they were, but I mean, that was the great thing. They were getting outside of, as you said, the, the student bubble, which is often the problem. You can exist within that for four or five years or whatever it is. I, mean, I think I did um, because I think at the time I was there, there, there just wasn't that hub to, no. to latch onto like Creative Dundee. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that needs to be encouraged more and more is to sort of get students to reach out as early as they can and actually start to to get involved in things, go along to things, start to question things and actually really become part of it, um, which 
I think we can always we can always be encouraging people to do that more. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely, completely agree with you. Um, and that's what education is about, you know. And I think it, it was for me when I was a student. It wasn't just about. Uh, I was going to say it wasn't just about sitting in lecture theatres. I hardly went into a lecture theatre but it was all about that other stuff that was going on you know there was punk happening in north london there was the squatting movement it was getting involved in other organizations and cultural activities and stuff that's that that was as important a side of my education as the stuff that i did at the college you know and that will always be the case but you have in in education you know, I think we have to think much more expansively about education and how, that, how it's going to work in the 21st century and all the different influences that come in and how people, and not just young people, but people of all ages, uh, connect with education. There's a lot of new thinking that has to go on there. Okay, well, that'll lead me on to my next question. Is it, so what, I mean, what is the, in your eyes, what is the future of education or what should we be trying to change now um, for future generations? So we're, we're on the verge of something. We're right on the edge of something. I mean, some people have called it you know, the second machine age. And it's interesting, the first machine age was the first part of the, of the 19th century. And um, that was about automation. And of course, you know, almost exactly 200 years ago, you had the Luddites, people who were machine wreckers because the machines were taking away their skill and their job and their livelihoods. Okay. We're just about to enter the second machine age where it's not going to be weavers. It's actually going to be doctors because the AI revolution is going to start taking away expertise. Um, and, but expertise in a rich and complex sense. So we have to think about education in a completely different way. What was interesting 200 years ago is that as we were adapting to the, the needs of the first machine age, so Sir Robert Peel, the Prime Minister, stood up in Parliament um, in 1832 and said, I suggest that we have a network of design schools throughout the UK because that's the education that will be required in the coming years, right? So, okay, maybe we were moving then from not necessarily training people in the craft of weaving, but certainly in the design of weaving, because those products have become much more culturally and economically diverse and important. So we're also entering another revolution now, which will affect education. Unfortunately, higher education has a is a wee bit of a problem that it's it's institutionally stuck. It's 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 been saddled with, and it's not its own fault at all. I think it's a number of different governments. A funding model that makes it actually quite immune to change, right? It's locked into teaching predominantly young people on a full-time basis. And uh, it's also locked into requiring lots of international students to fund itself, particularly at a postgraduate level. Now, we need an education system that is based upon real lifelong learning, you know, that is based on part-time provision, that is based on evening provision, etc. Um, that that recognises that the skill and knowledge needs of people will forever be shifting in this century, will forever be shifting. You know, I can't remember who said that, you know, knowledge ages like fish. You know, it's what you learn in, in a degree course is actually the knowledge is, is pretty useless within a couple of years. Um, and you always have to keep adding to it. So how do people add to that knowledge and how do we uh, how do we give them that 
passion for acquiring new knowledge? And how do we give them the self-confidence that they can acquire it and they can acquire it themselves? So also we're looking at stuff like distance learning. And and so uh, at my time towards, well, towards the end of my time at, at Dr. Jordanston, you know, I think one of the things that I was particularly proud of and interested in was starting up a new part-time master's course that was delivered by distance learning um, called Leadership and Innovation. And my part of it basically was teaching social workers and other public uh, service professionals service design remotely. So some of my students, for example, one student was a, was a chief dentist in New Zealand. Another was a junior finance minister in Malta, social workers across Scotland, etc. Um, these people didn't want to do a full-time master's course. So there's there no way they could do a full-time master's course. Um, and they didn't want to do any kind of course in Dundee, actually, most of them, because they didn't live there. But they wanted things that were a lot more flexible. So we have to provide uh, much more... You know, we kind of kind of have to reboot the Open University in a much more imaginative and relevant way. I think there's an opportunity for Scotland in in doing that and actually thinking, okay, so what? Yeah, the Open University and the Polytechnics, I think, are one of the great achievements of education in, in the twentieth century, um, and they were great in their time, right? And and now we need another revolution that is going to create flexible institutions that can fulfill the needs into the future and those needs inevitably are based around distance learning they're based around flexible provision um, they're based around students who are learning from a range of different professionals not just professional educators and I think that's really important um in Open Change, Hazel and I recently done an evaluation of a, a school course, actually, um, in in Scotland, on work-based learning, where where thirteen, fourteen-year-olds are being taught actually by a range of different people, and and it's fantastic what what they've achieved on this course is absolutely stunning, and again, it's this this thing about passion and self-confidence. These kids, these young people have been absolutely buoyed up, but they recognize that they can do things that they never thought they could do before because they're being taught in a radically different way by different people. And they're not being uh, treated like like school kids. You know, they're actually being treated like like young people, you know, and with the respect that, that comes with that. So there's a need to rethink education right across the piece from schools through into higher education through into vocational education um, and through into education for people I guess like myself in their third age you know you, you never stop learning you must never stop learning and you know human beings are, are, are an incredibly they're the most valuable resource that we have and we must always nurture them we must always inspire them we must always give them passion and we must always give them the opportunity to find the things that they're absolutely brilliant at doing because every person is brilliant at doing something different so i mean you've touched on um you mentioned service design there briefly um but i want to sort of go back because i think a lot of the the roles and the jobs that you've had have actually involved a lot of the different aspects of service design before service design was an established profession um so i want to know like I, as a term and as a thing, when did you first get involved in, in service design? It was um, it was Lauren Curry that uh, I've, I've learned more from Lauren and, of course, Sarah Drummond. 
than uh, and of course Hazel um, than just about anyone really. And it was it was Lauren who, um, as you know, she um, was doing Hazel's master's program, and she said, "Right, I want to learn everything about service design." And we all kind of looked at each other and said. Hmm. Do you want to know anything about service design? And, and again, it was well. I said earlier that you know it's people like yourself who do the heavy lifting on learning. She did all the heavy lifting on that. You know, we we knew very little about service design. We knew it was a thing, right? We didn't know much about it. She found out about it, and um, but it was it was kind of beginning to break through. And then I realised actually the stuff that I've done on design against crime that kind of was service design. We you know we didn't know it was a thing back then, but. I guess the stuff that I was doing in the early 80s around, you know, computerizing the NHS, that was service design as well. We wouldn't have called it that at the time. Um, and so I, Lauren was really important and, and then Sarah in, in terms of inspiring me around that and talking to other people, etc. And again, that was happening at the same time as social media. So those are two things that I started weaving into just about everything that I was doing at Duncan and Jordanston. How do you embed social media? And this was going back to the stuff I was kind of started doing in the 80s, was how, how do you make technology something that brings people together and helps people's learning and inspiration rather than just being something that controls them? And so that was why... Um, I remember vividly the first demonstration of this. Lauren had said, why don't you sign up to Twitter? I said, well, what is Twitter? Well, it enables you to send a message to anyone, lots of people, of 140 characters. I said, well, what's the point of that? You know, what's the point of that? And um, she organized an event that was um, her and a, a Jonathan Baldwin, who used to teach at Duncan Jonathan at the time, and myself, I think Hazel was there, a couple of other people. Lauren was running it, and she'd Skyped in, and I'd only just kind of started using Skype, um, a woman from, from London, and Jonathan was using Twitter to get people all across the world to ask them questions about this. And suddenly I could see what the point of it was. I thought, whoa, you know, this this is... the. I don't like using this, overusing this term, but this is revolutionary. If you can bring people together and you can use technology in that kind of way. So I've always tried to figure out a way of using social media in a way that is positive and is useful. Um, and yeah, hopefully I've done that. But yeah, Lauren um, and Sarah were two really important influences in terms of, of service design. And then obviously you made the decision... Um to step away from education yeah and start your own uh, consultancy with hazel um so why why did that decision come about what pushed you back out after that 25 years um well it was hazel who set up open change and she was the she was the first person at duncan jordanston to i can't remember build a glider dig a tunnel um <laughs> i don't know how she managed to get out of the building in the end but no she'd made that decision and um, so I suppose it was, I, you know, of the two of us, I think I'm probably the more cautious one. And I was kind of holding back a bit. I think, well, you know, if open change doesn't work, then I've still got the day job and, you know, you can pay the bills and stuff. And open change really kind of started taking off. But already by that point, I was thinking, well, so what happened as you get older, you know, and I, I was at that stage, I was just coming up to 60. And I thought, well, 
so what have I got? I, I can pick up my pension from 67. So is that what I've got seven years left? Is that it? You just co coast down? And I've always... I've done a fair bit of moving around in my life, whether it's from a whether it's from a one career to another career, or different parts of the country, or different places. I actually counted up the other day how many addresses I'd had uh, in my life. Twenty seven, twenty seven different places. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so that thing about moving around. And I thought, well, no, I don't want to coast down. And uh, and without naming names. You could see a few people around me, kind of, that's what they were doing. They were coasting down because you've got a nice, you know, pension and stuff. So what's the next challenge? I've done, I've moved on and done different things because I wanted a different challenge. And, and I got satisfaction and fulfillment by doing that challenge. I'd learned stuff along the way. So what can I learn from that? And uh, so we decided, okay, let's make a real go of that. And... Um, it's been great. I've never never looked back. Um, occasionally, I go into Duncan and Jordanston um, when they let me and uh, talk to uh, Fraser's very kindly invited me to talk to his students um, in a few weeks' time. And uh, having that connection with students is 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 really important. We've got an intern. She's not a, a DJ CAD student, Barbara, who's spectacular. She's a, a politics and psychology student. So that, that link with the university and with education is really important. But I think it's that thing, and I guess that's one of the things, looking back at things that I've done, is, you know, make your life interesting and diverse and keep giving yourself challenges. Um, you know, I kind of, it's one of my favourite quotes. It's from David Bowie. He said, you know, when I feel comfortable, I know things are wrong. You know, and it's that thing, once you start feeling comfortable, you're not doing new things, you're not innovating, you're not really necessarily learning stuff. Oh, yeah, life is comfortable. Life is, you know, got no, you're not being confronted with anything that you can't do. Well, that's a shame, isn't it, really? You know, over the next couple of weeks, we've got things coming up, and I'm thinking, God, I haven't done that. I don't know how this is going to work, but oh, let's throw ourselves into it. And that's great. Um it's the thing, I guess, also one of the things after 25 years in higher education is you realise that you're a bit like a farmer because it's all seasonal. You know, it's a bit like you've got the lambing season, you've got the harvest stuff, you've got recruitment, you've got assessment. Da, 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 da. Every year has the same cycle. And I realise that some people actually really, really like that. They they like that regularity, right? And they know, they know exactly what they're going to be doing next week, next month, you know, in, in four months' time. They know exactly... And I'd kind of, yeah, I suppose I got a little bored with that. I like that sense of, well, I have no idea what we're going to be doing in two months' time. I've, I've got a pretty slender idea what we're going to be doing in two and three weeks' time. I know we're going to be doing something. I don't know how that's going to turn out. Um, but having these things that, um, you know, and our business is based largely on, on word of mouth. Um, and that makes it exciting because you're building up a reputation for something that you could do well and you're selling that expertise. And I suppose the other reason that I bailed out was because in the last few years I was teaching something called design enterprise, you know, go out there and embrace the gig economy and be enterprising and be entrepreneurial and stuff. And at one stage I, I thought, hang on a minute, but I'm not doing those things. You know, I'm telling 
these people to go out and and go whitewater rafting across their future careers, you know. And, and I'm not doing it. So actually, I better walk the talk. And uh, yeah, and it's great. What we do in Open Change is fantastic. And, and um, you know, like you, Ryan, you kind of, you've got, you've got things that you want to do. You've got things that you know that you're really good at, but you want... You want a sense of variety and you want a sense of adventure in what you're doing. And you, like us, have no idea what you're going to be doing in a year's time. And that's the fun of it. Yeah, and I think that comes down to the the experience and, as you said, the, the confidence to know that the work will be there, the work will come. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, you can take, after a certain amount of time, it's taken me a good few years to get to that point, but now I feel like I have that confidence that, that yeah, that okay two or three months down the line i might not know what's happening but i have confidence that i'll be able to, to still have work at that point mm-hmm. and if it's not there i'll know what to do yeah yeah um which i think it starting any businesses yeah, that's a it's a constant battle between your sort of self-belief and that that confidence that knowledge and that experience just to back yourself up i think it, it's always difficult yeah um one of the things i wanted to move on to talk about is I mean, it does come back to that that confidence and that passion. But when you're in front of people, you I mean, the work that you do, you conduct a lot of workshops or events mm-hmm. and facilitate a lot of um, a lot of things. So, where did that ability come from? And is it something that you think you've always had, or do you think it's something that you've built slowly over time? Um, I. I don't really know where it comes from. I think it comes from um, your a kind of mix of your personal qualities. You know, do you like people or do you not like people? Do you, do you like, are you a nurturing person or not a nurturing person? And, you know, your your teaching style or your interacting style with people it depends on all those different qualities. Um, as I said, you know, my mother and my father, they were both personal inspirations. They were both teachers and and quite charismatic teachers and um yeah so that that sense of you know you 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 want you want you want the audience to look at you right if they don't look at you they, you actually can't do anything with them at all but you don't want to dominate you you want to take them along on a kind of journey with them so whatever natural personality you have you have to marshal it and focus it on what your objectives are in a in a teaching or in a facilitating uh, situation so it's a mixture of personal qualities and it's a mixture of of experience and knowing what works and what doesn't work and as i said from my experience in staffordshire i realized quite quickly what didn't work you know and i had to do things very very differently um but it's also having a sense of being very very clear what is it that you're actually trying to achieve what what is it that you want to do and also to know your audience what's uh, what's going to work with them and what isn't i mean there were things that I, approaches that i have used with teach with students at say duncan and jordanston that you would never use you know if you're doing something with the city council i mean it just doesn't work at all and um that's not just about using rude words not that i ever use rude words with any audience but it's about it's about figuring out what the people want and also how much time do they have and how open are they to being um and i suppose the other thing is 
are they there because they want to be there or are they there because they've been told to be there? And that, that's a real decider then for the approach that you're going to take. Um, and so do you think that you have a particular persona when you, you get up in, in front of people that is sort of removed from from your, your day-to-day or your, your sort of... That once you stand up, you become someone slightly different? Yeah, of course. And... It's to do with it's to do with, and I think anyone who performs in whatever capacity, whether you're a teacher, whether you're an actor, you know, whether you uh, are in a band, whatever you are, you're a TV presenter, um, you you take your your natural personality and you create something around it. There's a there's an exaggeration there, and that that makes it work. You you do it with the podcasts, you know, and you take elements of your of your great personality but you kind of magnify them a bit and and that great thing that you have that kind of intimacy works really well with a with a uh, the podcast format uh, we all do it that's in part because it's a form of protection because if things don't work you could think oh actually it was the persona that failed it wasn't it wasn't me as an individual and and when you talk or listen to or watch you know, actors doing that, they'll kind of they'll say, yeah, yeah, no, I, that, that performance was dreadful, but that, that was that was the performance. That wasn't me, <laughs> you know. So the persona is important. It was the thing watching Robin Williams in that film. It wasn't that I wanted to be like Robin Williams at all, but he clearly had created a persona, well, not only in the film, but in real life for all kinds of reasons that we now know tragically what those reasons were but those personas i think are important as a technique that we use in in whatever we do so where do you think um that your expertise lies cooking mainly um (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i mean where my expertise i'm i'm a um I'm a cross-disciplinary person. I think um, I, um, I'm i not a specialist. I'm not a specialist in anything, and I think that's one of my strengths is that I can pull across different domains and different disciplines, um, and I think I'm quite a good communicator, and I think that's, you know, really kind of, that's, that's my strength. I mean, I'm nothing, I'm, as I said earlier, you know, I'm nothing special at all. Um, I, I I just found, and well, after you know, sixty-one years, you do find this out. I've just found uh, what it is that I'm good at doing, and I have confidence about that. And uh, and I think that's part of getting older, really. You know, I mean, when I was when I was in my twenties and thirties, I, I thought I was hopeless. Really, I, I had no confidence at all. And there's there's almost an inevitable aspect as you get older that that confidence comes, but it, that comes through something, and this is a this is a often misunderstood term comes through wisdom. Wisdom is nothing about being smart or clever. Wisdom is about being you've got all this experience right that you've picked up along the way, and it actually that helps you make sense of things that otherwise you couldn't make sense of um, about yourself and about situations that you're in and about other people. So inevitably that wisdom thing comes along. Um, and and also the things that might have thrown you when you were back in your 30s or 20s, um, you get older, you think, oh, bugger it, you know. Well, I mean, that's, that's not, 
you know, if someone's criticizing me for that, forget it. Um, and uh, that criticism that someone was making for whatever reason really bugged you. I can remember things people said to me in my twenties that, oh, I carried that as a weight for years, you know. But then in the in the end, you think, well, you know. I am who I am, and you try and do your best at what you do, and you try and encourage other people around you, and um, and also acknowledge what you're not good at and what your faults are, and that that's I guess the secret of of um, getting older and uh, not being depressed about it, and recognizing the fact that yeah, your hair falls out, so live with it. <laughs> Though in your case, frustratingly, Ryan is actually still seems pretty intact, so. Uh, I don't know for how much longer I'll see. Well, well, that's... <laughs> um, so just to wrap up, um, one last question. What would you like to see in Dundee's future? What I'd like to see in Dundee's future is that we take a huge amount of confidence and achievement from this year, this very special year, and when V&A Dundee is opening, lots of other things are happening. We're focusing on the tourism and we're focusing on the fact that Wall Street Journal think we're fantastic and great. Let's bear in mind, let's not forget that there are thousands and thousands of children in this city who live in poverty. Right. Let's not forget that there are lots of people who have got substance problems, who've got mental health problems in this city, who are not getting the support that they need and they deserve. So we have to use whatever comes from V&A Dundee and the tourism and all the, the collective wealth that's generated around that and the sense of confidence that we can solve big problems and start directing it on that so that, that people who are sitting on the pavement begging for money don't think that actually the city is walking past them. Uh, going by on the other side you know they're part of the city and we we have to find creative and innovative ways of solving very complex problems but I, I feel that we can we can address them we can address them in a positive way so if anyone wants to reach out wants to get in touch with you what's the best way to do that the best place to find you online I'm on Twitter uh, a simple handle mike press uh, mike at openchange.co.uk on email um and our office is on the lane that runs down the side of the phoenix pub and um we're at one end of the lights that st string across the lane rap on the door we'll have a coffee great thank you very much thank you very much So thank you very much to Mike uh, for coming in and doing the podcast. I'm sure if I'd let him go, he could have gone for at least two hours. Easy. But yeah, I mean, there's just so many fascinating stories and parts to his career that um, I did genuinely learn a lot from that and then took a lot from that conversation. Um, so I hope you did as well. But yeah, um, if you don't already, um, if there's if you're a first time listener, um, new to the podcast, um, you can keep up to date with everything that's happening, all the guests that are coming on. It's at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram, and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. Um, yeah, so there's posts every time a new episode is going out, anytime anything's happening with the podcast, you can find out there, and also available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms. Just search Creative Chit Chat.
So yeah, enjoy the opening of that big building down on the waterfront. Um, I'm sure I will. And I will speak to you all next week. Bye. (laughs) 